Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. No matter where your travels take you, Get Your Guide offers the best way to connect with your destination. Choose from over 100,000 travel experiences in the U.S. and around the world with Get Your Guide. Whether it's the Sherlock Holmes tour in London, the night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, or whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon, whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and we are back with the fourth and final part in our series called The Sunken Lands, about places on Earth that relatively recently used to be dry land but are now covered by water. Now, in previous parts of the series, we talked about, of course, legendary lands of this sort, uh, Atlantis and other fictional or mythical sunken civilizations. And sorry to be a bummer to the many uh, Atlantis hunters out there, but yes, it does seem like the experts on the original sources that this story comes from, namely a couple of dialogues of Plato, think that it probably is a fictional invention and not a reference to a real place that existed. But that doesn't mean uh, that there are not lands that have been within uh, the history of the the human species submerged by water. In fact, we know of some examples of places that were both inhabited by humans and sunk under the water, not really anything like was described in the Atlantis story. But there are examples of the sunken land masses of Beringia and Doggerland, which uh, during and briefly after the last ice age formed land bridges between North America and Asia and Great Britain and continental Europe, respectively. We also talked about vanished islands in the Pacific. Uh, some of these supposedly vanished islands are probably a result of errors in their original reporting. Uh, but others are places that probably actually did vanish or sink beneath the water due to cataclysmic seismic activity. We also talked about atolls, how they're formed, and where their central islands went. Uh, there was a hypothesis that Darwin had about this going all the way back to his voyage on the Beagle. There are new ideas uh, related to karstification and the dissolution of, uh, of carbonate rock or limestone when it's exposed over the surface of the sea, uh, dissolution by rainwater. And uh, then also, finally, in the last episode, we talked about uh, 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 places that have been flooded by damming, the damming of freshwater resources, damming rivers and streams to, uh, to end up submerging areas that used to be exposed land now under lakes. Now, a quick note on just the idea of sunken islands and sunken lands. We had a listener ask about this in Discord. So I want to just briefly point out that, especially in our discussion of atolls in the last episode, the term sunken or to sink may ultimately be too simplistic for these discussions because they're all very based on the human perspective of, of what's going on. And in any case, we're talking about situations that may entail both rising and lowering sea levels, as well as land that is pushed up and or created by volcanic, organic, or seismic forces, and land that lowers sometimes beneath water level due to erosion, seismic forces, etc. 
Uh, so just in, in all cases, just keep in mind that, yeah, sunken, sinking, uh, maybe doesn't fully capture the the picture of what's going on. Well, actually, as as luck would have it, I do want to get uh, to one example of actual sinking of lands uh, in just a bit here. So in the background of discussing these historical cases of landscapes covered by rising seas, there is the knowledge that most of us have now that relatively rapid increases in sea level are happening right now and will continue in the coming decades due to climate change, due to the warming of the seas, the melting of glaciers. Uh, Sea level changes have happened on Earth before, but one thing that's different now is how much of the physical infrastructure and culture of modern human civilization was designed on the assumption of current sea levels staying where they are. Whole cities, whole countries even, are threatened by rising waters because they have been built without those rising waters in mind. Yeah, some of the very places we've discussed, at least in passing in these episodes, like the Maldives, are are, are greatly threatened by these rising seawaters. Yes, absolutely. But of course, this applies to coastal settlements all over the world on every continent on Earth, uh, though, uh, though in different ways, not every coastal settlement will be affected the same. And I want to get to some of that variance in just a bit here. Uh, But as a baseline, I thought we should look at how much are sea levels expected to rise in the next century or so. That depends on a number of variables, but uh, I was looking at the most recent IPCC report, which had put together a series of estimates. Um, First of all, they look at the question of what is happening to global mean sea level right now, what has already happened in uh, in the traceable recent past. Whatever happens in the future, one thing we know for certain is that the sea level is already rising and has already risen, and the rate at which it it rises will very likely accelerate in the future. Based on our best measurements averaged over different time periods, we can see that sea levels have risen over uh, over the past century, and the basically the more recent the chunk of time you look at is, the faster they're rising. So the IPCC report points out that uh, sea levels rose about 1.4 millimeters per year if you look at the time period 1901 to 1990. Uh, If you shift more recently and look at 1970 to 2015, it's 2.1 millimeters per year. If you just look at 1993 to 2015, it's 3.2 millimeters per year. If you just look at 2006 to 2015, it's 3.6 millimeters per year. So the later the period of the last century you look at, the more it is rising per year. Uh, Now, you might reasonably wonder, how do you actually measure sea level down to the millimeter? Like, the top of the water is always moving, so that's a reasonable question. What methods do you have to know that the average level of the sea is rising? Uh, There are a couple of major metrics here cited, and I didn't fully know how these worked uh, beforehand, so I, I thought this was interesting. One method used is tide gauges. Uh, These systems have been used in some form to record sea levels for hundreds of years, or at least going back, I think, to the early 1800s. Though now they've changed form to incorporate uh, different types of sensors and computers, uh, other modern components. But uh, some they still have some things in common. So the old method here was that they would use a device called a stilling well. And this was basically a pipe about a foot wide that would be plunged down into the water from a place called a tide station, essentially a house built out on a dock. And this pipe would still the water around a floating device. The float would be suspended down into the well by a wire, and then that wire would be attached at the other end to a recording device, which might be something like a pin that would mark the water level automatically on a paper strip. So the float floats on the top of the water. As the water rises, the pin moves and marks that level on on the paper strip. As the water goes down, the pin moves again. And then these marks were analyzed and averaged together to form a picture of the tidal variance and the average sea level. Over time, this method changed so that the data could be fed uh, directly into computers. And uh, these tide stations also, they had measuring staffs as well. You've probably seen things like this somewhere around the coast uh, before, where it's just like a stick poking out of the water. It's basically a ruler, you know, it's got height markings on them. And then uh, the operators could visually observe the staff and compare that to the mechanical readings from the float device. Now, tide gauges still exist and they still make readings, but they've got new systems, new types of sensors to 
today to get their readings from. Modern tide gauges tend to use acoustic sounding tubes instead of a float uh, and, a, and a stilling well. So the acoustic sounding tube will emit, uh, will emit a sound wave from a fixed height and then wait for it to bounce off of the water's surface and come back. And the time to return of the signal allows you to calculate the height of the water across the tidal variance. So you can put in place these tide gauges in, uh, in you know, coastal environments all around the world and average them out to try to get some in information about what the global uh, sea levels are, are doing all around the world. And if you look at that information, it shows, yes, indeed, the sea levels have been rising. They've been rising over the last century uh, along the lines of the measurements uh, I mentioned a minute ago. But if you're able, you'd also want to compare that data to other sources of information to make sure you're getting the most accurate possible average. So there is another method that is used, and that is altimetry. Uh, this is the use of satellite-based tools called radar altimeters to measure the height of the sea. Uh, basically, you can know the altitude of a satellite with a high degree of precision. You can track that with instruments like uh, laser rangefinders, range like, you know, bounce a laser off the satellite so you can tell pretty much exactly how high it is. And then with, with that information in mind, you can use a satellite to send out a microwave pulse toward the Earth uh, that pulse bounces off of the surface of the ocean and then bounces back to the satellite and hits a return sensor. And then the satellite measures the time of the round trip between the, uh, the emitter and the surface of the ocean to get a very precise measurement of the distance between the satellite and the water, which, again, in combination with the precisely known altitude of the satellite, can be used to measure the level of the sea. And of course, radar altimetry can be used to measure average sea level changes over time and get global averages and stuff. But it can be also used, I, I thought this was interesting, to measure variations in the height of the water around the world at the same time. So a kind of crazy thing about the ocean is that it is not at the same height everywhere on Earth all the time. That, that seems counterintuitive because you think of water in a container like a bowl or something eventually finding, you know, finding its own level. It kind of levels out. But across the world's oceans, there are peaks and valleys that arise in certain places at certain times. And so one example we're all familiar with is the tide. You know, the tide is caused mainly by gravity, by the gravitational influence of the moon, but also the sun. Uh, but there are other factors that can cause local and uh, sometimes temporary high and low altitudes of seawater as well. Uh, I was reading a report from NASA Earth Observatory about this, and it mentioned friction caused by wind on the surface of the water. So like wind sort of dragging the water around and piling it up in certain places. Uh, I guess that's a crude way of describing it, but th that is sort of what happens. There are also Coriolis effects and ocean currents, and there are also uh, effects of uh, variations in atmospheric pressure. So, you know, the atmosphere pushing the surface of the water down when, in regions where the pressure is high and so forth. And we can measure these altitude variations across the ocean with the help of satellite-based radar altimetry. As just one example of the, the variance in the height of uh, the oceans around the world, uh, according to NASA, the sea level in the Pacific Ocean is generally higher than the Atlantic Ocean, roughly 20 centimeters or about eight inches higher. How is that possible? Well, uh, the volume of seawater is not static. Changes in the temperature and salinity of seawater affect its density. So warmer water generally is less dense. It takes up more space per unit of mass. The Pacific is on average warmer, so its volume is greater, and thus Pacific sea levels are higher, and other factors contribute like this as well. This kind of variation is actually uh, acknowledged in the IPCC report where they say, quote, sea level rise is not globally uniform and varies regionally. Thermal expansion, ocean dynamics, and land ice loss contributions will generate regional departures of about plus or minus 30% around the global mean sea level rise. Uh, and the, those regional variations in, in changes in sea level, I want to come back to that in a minute. Now, of course, we all know the main cause of the current warming that is driving sea level 
rise is, uh, of course, what the IPCC report calls anthropogenic forcing. This means results of human activity, primarily the changing of the composition of the atmosphere, uh, causing it to trap more heat. This is the famous greenhouse effect. Putting more things like carbon, uh, methane into the atmosphere increases the heat trapping uh, uh, potency of the atmosphere. It traps more heat. The Earth warms. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in, so you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. So we know sea levels have been rising and they will continue to rise, but how much and how fast they rise is highly variable from our current point of view. Uh, so there are some estimates based on current data, according to the IPCC predictions, relative to the mean sea level in the period from 1986 to 2005, they predict that the global mean sea level will rise probably somewhere between 0.43 meters or about 1.4 feet to 0.84 meters, uh, which is about 2.8 feet by the year 2100. And then due to a cascade of factors, sea levels will continue to rise for centuries after that and will probably stay higher for thousands of years. Uh, now, I wouldn't hang, hang on those exact numbers too much because th those are estimates. They're also averages of estimates. And I've seen other reports with different estimates, especially at the high end of like how bad could it possibly get if we just keep increasing more and more greenhouse gas emissions. But the important thing to note uh, is that the high and low end projections here are dependent on the variable of human activity. So if we continue increasing the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we're somewhat closer to the top end of that uh, that range. And the low end is feasible if we drastically reduce greenhouse gas output and factor in some kind of negative emissions as well, such as massive natural or artificial carbon sequestration. And natural carbon sequestration would be uh, think, you know, trapping carbon in things like plants and forests. Yeah, so as is, I've heard a lot of experts say, it's not that there isn't room for optimism in all of this but the optimism does not come without action. Right. Um, there, are, there are definite steps that need to be taken. Um, we, we can't just be like, ah, it might be, it might be okay. Maybe it's just going to be the lower end. We'll just we'll roll the dice and see. Like, that's not how it's going to work out. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. The The lower end of the prediction range there is based on an assumption of action. If humanity mm-hmm. does something to massively reduce uh, the contribution to global warming through greenhouse gases. Uh, so, so in that case, yes, we could limit it to the lower levels of sea level rise. But to be to be clear, some amount of sea level rise at this point has already happened and is is basically locked in. The question is, how much worse will it get? Hmm. And that outcome is clearly dependent to a large extent on what we do. But in most plausible scenarios, we can expect somewhere between something like one and three feet of global sea level rise by the end of this century. Now, I mentioned there are other estimates I've come across. Some of these are specifically focused on like certain countries or regions or uh, might might be drawing on some uh, emphasizing different data sources or something. But another estimate I came across was a 2022 joint report by NASA, the NOAA, and several other federal agencies of the U.S. government called Global and Regional Sea Level Rise Scenarios for the United States. This was an update to a previous report from 2017. And this report, quote, concludes that sea level along U.S. coastlines will rise 10 to 12 inches uh, or 25 to 30 centimeters on average above today's levels by 2050. Uh, So that's predicting, you know, roughly a foot of increase by the middle of the century. Also on the more dire end, this one was predicting uh, much higher levels of sea level rise at the, you know, basically at the letter rip scenario. It's just like do nothing scenario by the end of this century. If you want to experiment with the findings of this report, it actually has an online mapping tool you can look up uh, and mess around with yourself called the Interagency Sea Level Rise Scenario Tool. You can Google that and and mess with it yourself if you want. Now, uh, there are a couple of major contributors to the actual physical causes of sea level rise due to a warming climate. One of them is melting ice, melting glaciers and ice sheets. Uh, we've already talked about the role of melting ice in the sea level increases at the end of the Pleistocene, which were responsible for inundating Doggerland and Beringia. But there's still a lot of ice on Earth left to melt. Another important cause of sea level rise is the thermal expansion of water. Remember what I was talking about a minute ago with the difference in the height of the Pacific Ocean versus the Atlantic Ocean, one factor there being that the Pacific Ocean waters on average are warmer. Uh, This stacks on top of the melting, but as water heats up, it becomes less dense and takes up more space. Warmer water takes up more space per unit of mass, so warmer oceans will be taller uh, and the uh, the thermal expansion of water plays a role already in the in a number of different uh, phenomena that happen within the ocean. For example, in the role uh, in the creation of ocean currents and in stratification of water levels within the ocean, like warmer water floats on top of colder water. Mm-hmm. But anyway, as the Earth warms, the the water thermally expands also, so that contributes to the sea level being higher. Now, what does this actually mean for the everyday life of people living in low-lying coastal areas of planet Earth? I think one thing people sometimes, like if you haven't read much about this, you might have trouble imagining the form exactly this will take. Like you're just imagining the sea rising in a kind of static way, like you know, it's either dry land or it's underwater, what's in between, there actually is something in between, which is frequent flooding. Uh, The way many people will probably experience sea level rise at first is an increase in the frequency and destructiveness of extreme weather events that are dependent on sea level for the amount of damage they cause. So a person who lives in a low-lying coastal city will start dealing with storm-related floods on a more and more frequent basis. What used to be a once-in-a-century flood will become a regular occurrence until at some point the flooding becomes so common that people may start to simply consider a place uninhabitable. And this happens before that place is more or less permanently underwater, but that eventually happens too. Of course, this kind of flooding and water uh, encroachment, it comes with all kinds of consequences, massive economic damage, destruction of property, destruction of livelihoods, displacement of people, and all of the downstream effects of that. Uh, But another factor people might not think about are the effects of the ingress of salt water into uh, places with with freshwater resources, like into river deltas and so forth. Of course, this can have negative effects on habitats and wildlife, but also on agriculture and groundwater and all that. You you don't want to salt your earth. 
But to come back to an issue I raised earlier, uh, an interesting factor contributing to the coming inundation of coastal areas and especially coastal cities is that not only are sea levels definitely rising around the globe and differently in different places, in some places, the ground is literally sinking. The lands are not just metaphorically sunken because the water covers them. They are quite literally directly sunken. The land is going down. So you might have a coastal city that is experiencing more and more frequent flooding during storm surges as the sea grows taller, but also the ground level of the city is several millimeters lower every year, which makes the relative sea level rise even worse. Now, how is that possible? Well, there are multiple causes, but uh, I was reading about this, and a major one of the causes seems to be the extraction of groundwater from underlying aquifers, especially you're extracting it faster than those aquifers are replenished. And as the water is extracted, it creates these voids underground. These voids grow. The soil gets compressed, uh, especially if you're putting a bunch of heavy stuff on the soil, such as a city, like building on top of it. And then that compressing of the ground and the, the compressing into the voids below essentially means the city, the city literally starts to sink. And this is happening to cities all around the world. I was reading a, a really interesting uh, article that addresses this issue. It's in Wired by Matt Simon called Sea Level Rise Will Be Catastrophic and Unequal. So this article is emphasizing again that the global mean sea level rise estimates are averages. In specific places, the problem could be not as bad or much, much worse. Simon writes, quote, Galveston, Texas, where the land is slumping, could see almost two feet of rise by the year 2050. Meanwhile, Anchorage, Alaska, could see eight inches of sea level drop thanks to the fact that its land is actually rising following the departure of long-gone glaciers. So why is Galveston, Texas sinking relative to the sea level? Uh, he says mainly there, there are two causes here, uh, and they're, they're both related to the extraction of liquids from underground reservoirs. One is the extraction of water, and the other is oil, extraction of oil. And this is true in many places. As a result of the combination of global sea level rise and land subsidence, some of the areas of the world that are going to be the hardest hit by uh, the greatest relative local sea level rise are on the Gulf Coast of the United States, the Gulf Coast, because uh, they're suffering both of these at the same time. The land is going down and the sea is coming up. Uh, Simon, in this article, quotes a guy named Bob Stokes, who is president of the conservation nonprofit called the Galveston Bay Foundation. And he tells a story that I thought was wild. Uh, so this is Stokes talking in the article. He says, quote, the numbers I'm going to give you are hard to are going to be hard to believe, but there is an area in Baytown where there is a big Exxon Mobil industrial plant that sank about 11 feet in a period of 50 or 60 years because they were unsustainably pulling water out of there. There was a nice and upper middle class subdivision where all the Exxon executives lived that ultimately had to be condemned because water was lapping up the foundations of these houses. So there, water and oil being extracted from below, the land is sinking, and the sea is coming up. Meanwhile, uh, the, with the example of Anchorage, Alaska, uh, this is typical of many areas on the southern coast of Alaska where the ground is rising due to glacial retreat. Uh, this is called glacial isostatic adjustment. And Simon uses the analogy of when you get up off of a, a memory foam mattress and that mattress gradually fills in the dent you left with your body. That's kind of what the land does when a glacier retreats. When a gr glacier melts away, it sort of bounces back up. So uh, areas where the land is rising relative to the sea are going to be on average hit less by global mean sea level increases. And areas where the land is literally sinking, such as in many cities on the Gulf Coast, they're going to be hit harder than average. And there are a lot of sinking cities, not just on the Gulf Coast, but uh, according to the map included all along the U.S. East Coast. Now, this article goes on to talk about other factors contributing to the regional variation in the effects of sea level rise as well, uh, such as local characteristics of water, you know, uh, warmer waters, as we said earlier, usually mean higher sea levels, but also more storm surge uh, and, and things like that. Uh, but important thing to remember at the end of this, 
projections are variable. At this point, some amount of sea level rise is locked in, but humanity has power over how much worse the problem gets, and the recipe for minimizing damage to world civilization is reducing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere as much as possible. Stop adding them, and to the extent possible, take them out. Yeah, uh, basically, the natural environment is malleable, as we've discussed, uh, and humanity has tremendous power and tremendous will we see that in the uh, in the uh, in the, the degree to which we have and are changing things but that power and will can also be applied uh, to changing the ways that we are interacting with the natural world for the better but again it does require action it doesn't require just setting back and hoping that it will be better or pretending that the problem does not exist correct Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. All right, so this is the the fourth part of our series, and we could we could honestly easily keep going, but we can't because we got some Christmas stuff to do next week. Um, <laughs> so in this last section, I'd like to refer to the ancient Hindu Hindu epic, the Ramayana, um, which I do want to add a note. I've I brought this up in the show, but I brought the topic up on the show before, but I don't know that I've been using the proper pronunciation. Uh, I may have said it wrong in the past, in which case, uh, my apologies. But uh, the Ramayana which chronicles the life of King Rama, um, or Ram, uh, an incarnation of Vishnu. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with the story, there are lots of ins and outs. It's essentially the story of this, um, of, of this mythical king, this divine king's life. But there is perhaps the most famous uh, plot line in there is that his wife Sita is kidnapped by the tin-headed demon king Ravana, who takes her away to the land of Lanka, provoking a great war to reclaim her. So, of course, Rama has to assemble the troops. He has to gather his forces. And this includes various figures and factions, including a people known as the Venara. Um, in, in short, the Venara are the monkeys. If you've seen illustrations of the Ramayana before, you, you've, you know, some of the related traditions, you've, you've probably seen images of these various monkey troops um, aiding Rama. And, of course, you may be familiar with Hanuman, the most famous of the Venara. This is, you know, the, the tireless friend to Rama and uh, his, you know, his key champion and a, a very powerful entity that is, I believe, the son of a wind deity in, uh, in, in some traditions. Mm. So, um, uh, but I was looking into the, into the Venara a bit more, and according to the author uh, Nanditha Krishna in the book Sacred Animals of India, which I've referred to in the past, the Sanskrit word for primate is actually kapi, but the word used in the Ramayana 
uh, Vanara essentially translates to people of the forest, with Vana being forest and Nara being men. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the author writes that this term probably never actually meant monkey. In fact, in uh, Jainism, uh, the, the, the Vanara are described as a forest-dwelling tribe of people. And elsewhere in the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, they are also discussed as such. Contributing to this kind of mythic transformation from perhaps, you know, some sort of forest-dwelling people to, an, to intelligent humanoid primates, uh, it, it might have been that these people, it, to whatever extent, you know, they were real, uh, they may have been worshippers of a primate-themed deity, or they mm. might have used a, some sort of primate-themed totem of some sort or some sort of totem system. But the author stresses that it could also be neither of these. We just don't know. Hmm. And so the Venara include several important uh, uh, individuals that pop up in the epic. There's mighty Hanuman, as we already noted, most famous of them all. There's King Sugriva. And there's also a pair of twins uh, known as Nala and Nila. And the twins' aid is especially important because Rama must deliver his army across the waters to the island fortress of Lanka in order to reclaim his bride. And so, as the epic uh, uh, describes, they have to create a bridge and this is where Nala and sometimes Nila, depending on the, the version, becomes essential. This is a quote from the Ramayana uh, in translation, of course. Quote, a bridge was thrown by Nala or the narrow sea from shore to shore. They crossed to Lanka's golden town where Rama's hand smote Ravana down. A bridge was thrown. Wow. How do you how do you throw a bridge? Well, um, this is where this is where things get get interesting. Dissecting all of this because the accounts apparently vary. In some cases, the resulting bridge that gets thrown or constructed um, is is in fact a, a great bridge. Uh, that it's you know something built, it's constructed, it's perhaps made it wood at the base and then becomes stone um, um, uh, further up. You know, it is like a a uh, a, a, a huge mega work that connects one land to the next so that the army can march over it. Other times, uh, it's described more as, I mean, it's still something that's constructed, but with a lot more magic involved. Like, there are stories about the Varna using floating stones to build uh, this bridge, throwing the stones in the water. And in some cases, these are stones that kind of float on their own already. But then there are other accounts where like there's a certain amount of monkey trickiness that's involved. Like they mm. they do some like I think the account that I was reading, one of the accounts is that they were like throwing holy items into the water. And the God said, OK, that's it. Nothing the monkeys throw in the water can sink. Everything has to float. We can't have the stuff sinking to the bottom. And then they start throwing the stones in ah. and they kind of find a loophole to build the bridge. Brilliant. Love a loophole. Yeah. But uh, at, at any rate, there's no like one way, apparently. There are different accounts, different stories. Uh, but we end up with the idea of a bridge one way or another. Um, this is Rama's bridge or the Rama Situ. Now, especially since this has already come up in this series we're doing, I know some of you are thinking about those floating pumice rocks and wondering if observations of this phenomenon uh, might have influenced the myth-making, or if this has anything to do with it. And apparently, the, this has been discussed, those, the number of criticisms emerge concerning like the lack of such stones in areas um, uh, that are discussed as possibly linking up with the area where this great bridge could have been or is supposed to have been. More on that in a second. And then, of course, you get into some other situations too. Like it's one thing for, you could, I guess you could say like the idea could be passed on and then could spill over into some myth making. But could you actually build a bridge using pumice stones? I, I think there's significantly less evidence for that. Yeah. Would they support your weight? I mean, I would think it'd be more like the, you know, the ball pit, you kind of fall in between them. Yeah. And I think there are also just more convincing ideas regarding all of this. So, of course, the big questions here would be, okay, First of all, did something even remotely like the events uh, of this Hindu epic ever take place? And if so, where did it take place? Where would this bridge have been and what land masses would it have been linking? So versions of question one, to be clear, turn up in all religions. Mm -hmm. And they're often asked with different objectives in mind. Very broadly speaking, some researchers seek to prove religious accounts correct by finding corroborating evidence in archaeology, history, and geology, uh, while others seek to employ religious texts to, uh, to better understand human and geologic history. 
again, very broadly speaking, because you can wind up with a little bit of column A and column B and vice versa, um, you know, and, and human motivations are ultimately complicated. But it also means that these sorts of discussions can generate strong emotions as well. Um, mm. So I would suppose we should stress something that we often touch on, that mythology is not fiction, even if it is not objective reality. Uh, not to say that it is necessarily completely removed from objective reality, but it's kind of this third category between the two uh, that can still empower us on multiple levels and give life meaning without being like one-to-one with the objective world. Well, yeah, I, I've often spoken this opinion with reference to things like the creation story told in Genesis or something that are, mm-hmm. are you sure that the people who first wrote this story even necessarily meant it to be taken as a literal factual account? Yeah. And, it, you know, kind of comes back to some of the things we we're discussing just concerning some of these ideas of different lost islands and, and so forth. It's like we, all, we, we always want to find that one reason, that one explanation. And, you know, oftentimes, especially when we're dealing with things like this that are uh, concepts that exist not only in one human imagination, but in multiple human imaginations spread out across different communities and cultures over like, long stretches of time, there's a lot of room for various influences to shape uh, the final form of the thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, coming to this idea of a bridge, uh, where would you possibly look for evidence of this? Uh, so a lot of it comes down to the possible location of the island of Lanka. And there's a great deal of scholarship on this question alone, with the prime candidate seeming to be the island of Sri Lanka. Uh, the Maldives, Sumatra, and even Madagascar have also been discussed. Um, but uh, And of course, conspiracy-minded folks are not above suggesting Atlantis. That's it. It was Atlantis. <laughs> yes. But uh, it was, yeah, it was not Atlantis. Um, so for, for our purposes here, we're going to focus mostly on Sri Lanka, as that's where there's some really interesting evidence to discuss. And that seems to be where a lot of the, the energy seems to be going. Uh, Sri Lanka is easily spotted on any map, uh, separated from the Indian Peninsula by the Gulf of Manar and uh, the Pak Strait. It has been inhabited by humans since prehistoric times. And so it's, you know, it's been it's been presented and there's there's additional evidence to support this idea as well that we don't have time to get into. But a lot of people make the case that Sri Lanka was Lanka. And uh, so, yeah, how, how would you get an army, an ancient army, uh, supernatural or otherwise, from point A to point B? Well, this is, of course, where the bridge comes in. And of course, in the context of a mythic story, you know, the bridge doesn't have to be anything that corresponds with actual geology or time-specific technology. I mean, it, people can imagine bridges spanning impossible distances, that sort of thing. Uh, I think all that goes without saying. And there's plenty of things that happen in the Hindu epics that are inherently supernatural. Uh, but attempts to nail down a possible actual bridge to Sri Lanka would constitute either a manufactured bridge and or a naturally occurring bridge. It's the idea of at least some level of naturally occurring bridge. This is where it gets really interesting because there is a chain of limestone shoals between Manar Island off the northwest coast of Sri Lanka and Ramaswaram Island off the southeast coast of India. Hmm. Interconnected with sandbanks, it all forms a 30-mile or 48-kilometer long quote-unquote bridge and it is shallow enough to pose a navigational hazard to ships. Oh, okay. So it's almost like if, you know, if the water levels were a little bit lower or something were piled up here, you could imagine something like a bridge emerging. Yeah, yeah. And so this and this is something that is, has captivated uh, uh, the human imagination for a while uh, and, 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 and caused people to, you know, logically wonder, could this be what the epics are talking about? Uh, so this is also commonly known as Adam's Bridge, uh, the name linked to uh, an Islamic tradition, and I think sometimes a Christian tradition as well, that holds that Adam's Peak on Sri Lanka is where Adam, the, the, the first human in uh, uh, Abrahamic traditions, fell to earth. And uh, the mountain uh, in question here is also sacred uh, in Hinduism. Hmm. At any rate, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the, these shoals and sandbars constitute a former land bridge though estimated dates vary. Uh, Cartographical records suggest that it may have been whole and even traversable until the year 1480. And the beginning in 1480, you might have had a series of storms 
that um, that ended up uh, washing sections of it away, uh, storm breaches that uh, that end up uh, making you know, taking away this portion of it, then another portion until you're left with something that is no longer traversable. Ah, well, so that is much more recent than any of the uh, than the land bridges we've been talking about in the other episodes, or like the or the so-called land bridges, the you know former areas of Doggerland and Beringia, which are. are now underwater and have been for many thousands of years. This is just a question of a few centuries, comparatively very recent, if true. Yeah, yeah. Though, of course, there are all sorts of questions that arise in this. Like, is it too recent? Is it something that would be something that might have emerged and then resemble something from pre-existing mythology? Uh, Mm. Or is it indeed, as many people, you know, uh, uh, believe, is it evidence of something that is described in the Hindu epics? Um, so it's it's fascinating to think about those things uh, and, and also uh, thinking about like reports of it being traversable uh, from centuries past, like to what extent can we trust those? We've already talked about whole islands that have been cataloged due to various errors or sort of um, siding, uh, deciding to err on the side of caution when identifying things that could be a navigational hazard to ships and so forth. Mm. But at any rate, there there is evidence of something here. And there are various theories about its natural formation. They range from tectonic forces to coral sand trapping, water current movements of sand, and so forth. So there is this idea that it could have been certainly a naturally occurring opportunity that could have been augmented then by human beings to some degree, which I don't think is is all that outrageous, at least if you consider like small-scale efforts to shore up or repair individual segments in a chain like this. Mm-hmm. And and then on top of that, I mean, ancient peoples were certainly capable of larger-scale engineering projects as well. Though, based on the sources I was looking at, I don't think there's any strong scientific evidence for the idea that it was uh, largely constructed or that it was constructed entirely. Uh, but again, this is an area of controversy. Mm-hmm. So setting aside how it came to be, we can be reasonably sure that remnants, the, the remnants we see here do constitute a one-time land bridge that, in its current form, is no longer traversable, likely due to changes in sea level and storm activity, some combination of the two. And there have been proposals to dredge more of it out um, in order to improve navigation by, by boat. But this is controversial, both due to environmental uh, reasons, but also to religious objections. And you also see proposals to rebuild the bridge, uh, quote unquote. And this would be a project that would have tremendous religious significance, as well as, of course, just being like a major avenue of transportation between nations. Yeah. By the way, we won't really have to, we don't have time to go into this one. But I also wanted to acknowledge that there is a mythical continent named Kumari Kandam. Uh, linked in some traditions to ideas like Lemuria uh, that it, um, have been that would have been situated in the Indian Ocean, uh, it would have allegedly hosted an ancient Tamil civilization, and I think it's generally described as a Tamilized take on the concept of Lemuria. Um, so, you know, a fairly recent idea in the grand scheme of things. But then, in the 20th century, the idea ends up being taken up by Tamil uh, revivalists, and so it. It has remained since that point a, a culturally charged idea as well, which kind of takes us back to a lot of what we were talking about just in general about the idea of sunken lands, whether real or mythological, even fictional, um, and, and how the classifications may shift over time and how they can, they, they can become important. They can become vitally important. Uh, they can be things that are sought after not only as a way to sort of understand mysteries about the natural world, such as how similar species can be found on two sides of a vast ocean, but also in trying to make connections that aid in the conceptualization of one's worldview, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think maybe that spells the end of our exploration of sunken lands, but this has been a really interesting journey to go on with you, Rob. Yeah, this has been this has been a lot of fun. I, I, I learned a lot, and uh, I would lo- love to learn some more from listeners out there. If you have some additional um, examples of anything we've discussed, any of the categories we've discussed in these episodes, if you have some firsthand knowledge or observations you'd like to share about the various places we've discussed, all of that is fair game, and we would love to hear from you. Just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, there tends to be a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. 
And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. I should point out, I do not think we've done an Atlantis movie on Weird Mm. House. I know we've had some flooding occur in some of the shows we've watched, but I don't recall Atlantis popping up. I could be wrong. There's a submerged city or two, I think. A A few submerged lands. I watched a movie a few years back that's about just like, there's like a, a hurricane and a flood and it's just about a bunch of gators getting in somebody's house. I forget what it's <laughs> called. It was pretty funny. Like they're coming up the stairs, that sort of thing. Uh, swimming up the stairs, you know. Oh, nice. I'm trying to look it up. It's not Gator from 1976, though that has Burt Reynolds in it. Now I kind of, kind of need to see it. Oh, it might, it might not be about alligators. It might be about a guy <laughs> called Gator. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, this is this is also fair game as well for anyone who wants to write in. If you have suggestions for Atlantis-based movies, sunken world movies that we can discuss in Weird House Cinema, well, we'd love to get those as well. Oh, I found what it was. It's called Crawl. It's It starts in a crawl space, and then the house is full of gators as it floods. That's what it is. All right. That sounds great. <laughs> it's great. Okay, anyway, a huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.